2 Timothy chapter 2, we are in our series from here to there, which is a series about essentially discipleship, and um, I've been looking forward to this text for quite some time. I was thinking to myself that uh, my intention was this morning to mention at the end of the service to everyone, especially those who have small children or uh, raising or influencing their grandchildren, and all those who work in children's ministry who are not uh, working in Awana to be here tonight. So I look around the room and I see God put some of you here uh, anyway, and I'm certain that some of the things that I say tonight will eventually make their way to the ears that need to hear um, by way of the Internet. And um, so this is definitely a very important text in 2 Timothy 2. We are living in a time where all of us would agree, we all know um, that there is a famine in the land. And the famine is a famine of biblical literacy, but it's not just intellectual understanding of the Bible in some sort of a textbook kind of a way. It's more than that. It's, 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 it's biblical reverence. It's biblical um, orthodoxy. It's, it's biblical practice. Um, we, it seems, with each uh, generation, we seem to be getting uh, worse and worse and worse at doing what God has clearly called us to do. And certainly that responsibility begins at home with parents who are raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, um, but it's not exclusively, um, all of the burden doesn't lie only there, but certainly primarily it lies uh, squarely on the shoulders of families. The book of 2 Timothy is really Paul's swan song. It's his final uh, epistle. But there's a sense as you read the first couple chapters of 2 Timothy that you, you understand, you begin to understand that Paul is writing from a broken heart. He's writing from a concerned heart. He's writing from a, a clear uh, concern over the propagation of the gospel um, through his young son, Timothy. He's not biological, but he calls him his son in the Lord. And he is concerned about uh, Timothy's um, uh, understanding and uh, the fact that it is paramount in Paul's mind that, that Timothy take these words and do with them as they are intended. So I want us to begin 2 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 1 and read the first seven verses. The Apostle Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier." And also, if anyone competes in athletics, it is not, 
he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. I want us to look at the pictures that Paul uses as metaphors to drive home the significance and the importance of what he's saying. And I think what we have here in these first seven verses is really a blueprint. So if you said to yourself, well, I'm not clear, you know, how to do what God's called me to do, or where do I start, or what does it look like? Here's a blueprint for every family, for every discipler, to say this is what God is calling us to. This is how to get from where we are to where we need to be. I am convinced that if these seven verses became ingrained in the DNA of the current generation of believers, we would see a turnaround in the uh, in, in just the the dwindling of biblical faithfulness. So let's look at these pictures. The first picture we see is uh, that, that we're called to have the, de- the dedication of a teacher, that Paul is calling us to be dedicated as a teacher. He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And these things that you have heard from me uh, among many witnesses, com- commit them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, the first thing Paul says is you... Therefore, my son, that you is an emphatic you. He's saying you, you, Timothy, you, Tony, you, whoever you are, you be strong. That's an imperative command to be strong. And it's in the present tense as if it's, it's active continually that you imperatively are commanded to continually be strong. You, Timothy, keep standing strong in grace. That grace is what is going to enable us to stand. Grace is what is going to enable us to continue to stand. That grace is going to be the fuel for which we're able to stand. So we need to know where we're going to stand as teachers. So when you say to yourself, God is commanding me to to teach what I have have, learned, received over the course of my life and in the process of my life that I'm commanded to impart that onto others, you need to stand in grace as a teacher. Now, we could talk the whole night just about what it would look like to stand in grace, but you're going to have to stand in grace because teaching is a very difficult thing to do. It's not easy. It doesn't go according to plan. You need to stay focused on what it is you're to share, which is what Paul says in the next section. But really, you've got to start by saying, I've got to stand in grace. If I don't stand in grace, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get discouraged. You're going to think that people aren't listening. You're going to think that it's hopeless. You're going to think that it's, uh, it's just too difficult. They're too strong-willed. They're too far gone. They're too whatever it is. If you're not standing in grace, you're going to lose the battle. You got to know where to stand and you got to know what to share. Notice what he says in verse 2. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Again, another 
imperative command to commit. It means to place something in another's trust for safekeeping, that you are going to entrust these things. You're going to commit them in an entrusting way. You are commanded to do so and to hand these over to someone else who will then be faithful in stewarding that which you've handed over. Now, what are these things? Well, he told us in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy in verse 13, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you heard from me. He's very clear about what he means we're to pass on. We're not just to pass on anything. We're not to pass on what we feel like is true or what we think is true or what we, what we think culturally is true or what we were culturally brought up in. No, where there's a pattern of sound words which you have heard in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. If they're not in Christ Jesus, then that's not what we're talking about. That's something completely different. That good thing in verse 14, he says, which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. So he is telling us that there's a very specific block of information which is the word of God in the way in which it was delivered unto us, which is canonized in the 66 books of the scripture, that is the material that we're talking about teaching. Now, how did we get into the place that we are? It seems like every time Barna releases research, I am more and more flabbergasted by what... Uh, the Christian culture of our day has turned truth into. Um, it's, it's a never-ending sort of uh, just watering down and, and, and devaluing of absolute truth to the point where um, there's a there's a huge contingency of evangelical Christians today that believe that the Bible is true and at the same time believe that Jesus sinned. I mean, the, the big uh, heresy of our day really is twofold. One, it's that Jesus was not sinless, that everyone is totally on board and happy about the humanity of Jesus, the, the, the fact that he was fully man, but that he sinned, which is, it's just so ridiculous because it basically makes the entire Bible just, a, it makes Jesus a liar, but that he sinned, and of course, the ongoing um, uh, uh, just proliferation through our culture that uh, in Jesus' humanity, uh, he was not divinely conceived, that he was uh, conceived just like you and me, that he was fully human to that degree, which I think is, is really coming from a lot of the, um, the, the cults that are gaining ground in uh, Western culture that are, that are starting to be more and more uh, uh, acceptable to Christians. A lot of Christians are confused about who's even a Christian and who's not a Christian. 
And so one of the trademarks of almost every cult is that they're going to they're gonna humanize Jesus. They believe in Jesus, and uh, they believe the Bible, but then they, they humanize Jesus, and they, they reduce the divine nature of Jesus down to something that's very near just simply you and me, uh, but he was uh, supernaturally gifted as a teacher or whatever the case may be. And uh, so what happens is, is that our, our kids are going to be um, they're going to be confronted with, with these sorts of beliefs and understandings. It's going to get, it's going to get increasingly difficult to tell um, what's really going on in, in mainline Christianity because you've got all sorts of things that are blending in there. You've got all sorts of things that are mingling together that all call themselves Christianity, but in fact, much of it is not Christianity. And... The only way we're going to resolve that issue is by being faithful to teach the Word of God in the context in which it was delivered to us to those whom we're responsible to. We need to be committed to teaching and to knowing what to share and to standing in grace as teachers to share those things. You know, the goal of every... uh, of every saved person is to teach and the goal of every teacher is to reproduce that whatever we've been given we must reproduce and it's very simple it's not just like a few weeks ago rod preached a sermon in this uh series about multiplying and that is uh, more of an evangelism uh the the evangelistic side of discipleship which is very critical and important but i'm talking more about reproducing that which you've been given. The simple fact that where would we be, where would I be, and where would you be had the people who sown, who sowed seeds of the gospel into our life just kept that to themselves and not reproduced the things that they were given. Notice the generational um, method to what Paul is saying. So when Paul says, take the things that you've heard from me and among many witnesses and commit them to faithful men that will already be, that will be able to teach others also. Now look at what's represented in that one verse two, four generations. You've got Paul. Paul then um, gives to Timothy. Timothy gives to faithful men and faithful men give to others. So that's four generations right there. Or you could say that um, Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother, gave to Timothy. Timothy gives to faithful men. Faithful men give to... There's four generations represented right there in that one statement. And so it it causes me to think now, so how is success determined in teaching? And really, it's in the legacy that we leave behind. When we're gone, what do we leave What is the generational legacy that we've left behind? Because what what we don't want to do is we don't want to move from this life to the next having not reproduced that which we've been given into someone else. It wasn't given to us to just hold on to. It was given to us to give to some others. Maybe, uh, hopefully, um, those others are are people that are... uh, 
first and foremost our children or our grandchildren, but you know what? It may not be that way. But it needs to be somebody. There needs to be somebody that we're imparting what we've been given to. That is the determining factor of whether or not we've been successful in with regard to being a teacher. And as I thought about this, I thought, you know, I am so grateful for the faithfulness that I received generationally from Lisa's parents. That when I think about what was given to me, when I think about here we have, uh, I, I grow up in a completely pagan family, which is the same way that Lisa's parents grew up. But beginning with my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, God saves them. And they handed what they were given over to the next generation. Now, we've handed that to the next generation, and already we've seen the fourth generation is already now coming up in that. And and when you stop and look at across uh, her family, at all of the people that God has called into the ministry and the way God has worked in such tremendous ways through the faithfulness of handing this off, you see God's plan in this process. To which what I'm hoping happens tonight is I'm hoping you think, if I do anything in my life, if there's anything that I do, may it be this. Because it certainly is not how much you have in your 401k. It's not, you know, how many people think you're a great person. It's not, you know, it's not any, there's nothing that rivals what I'm speaking about right now generationally, what is the legacy that you'll leave behind? And listen, it's not going to happen by osmosis, I can assure you. Your children are not going to turn into world changers just by being in proximity of other people who were um, in love with the Lord. That's going to be greatly beneficial, but that's not going to be sufficient. You're going to have to systematically and intentionally teach. Well, uh, so now the torch is in my hand. And I look at my children, and I, I constantly think to myself about, um, you know, as the days start to approach where, you know, Lisa and I, you know, now every once in a while we'll even have conversations, although I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with it, we'll have conversations about, grandkids and what is that going to look like and you know uh, the opportunity that we have to improve upon that which we imparted into our own children to to do it you know because we get a, a second run at it you know from the outside and I'm really looking forward to that but you know it's important and it matters and I've got this torch and it's in my hand and I've got to hand this torch off and I'm responsible for that And I don't want to bungle it up. What will be the legacy that we leave behind? What will this fellowship look like when the next generation is in charge? 
Those are the things that keep me up at night. We've got to have the dedication of a teacher. Secondly, we've got to have the devotion of a soldier. He says in verse 3, he says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to focus on for a moment on the word endure. Because I want you to focus on what he doesn't say. What Paul doesn't say is what I see most people doing, which would be what you need to do is avoid hardship as a good soldier. He doesn't say avoid hardship. He says endure hardship. In other words, you should know that hardship is part of the program. You should just openly embrace it because that's just the way it goes. You don't run from it. You don't try to uh, stay away from it. You endure it. It is that the word must endure is again imperative command that Paul is commanding us to endure hardship. It's not, there is nothing optional about the term hardship, nothing. That is an imperative command. If you know anything about the English language, you understand that he is saying you endure hardship in the same way you would tell a child you are going to take that medicine or you are going to clean your room. You endure hardship. There's a, there's a commission on our lives the moment that we get saved, and it's to engage in a conflict. It's going to be a conflict. And, and this is where this whole process starts breaking down. I think that when we're talking about being a teacher, I think people want to be teachers. I think people will embrace the idea of being teachers. They're going to bungle it up on what to teach and maybe standing in grace and things of that nature. But where it really, where the wheels start to come off the cart is with this issue of enduring hardship, embracing conflict, knowing that you've been called to engage, that you're a soldier that certain things are just, they just come with being a soldier. You can't, you can't endure hardship from the sidelines. You can't. You look at Psalm 66. This will come up on the screen. The scripture says, for you, O God, have tested us. Now listen closely to what this says. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net and laid affliction on our backs. You have caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but you brought us out to rich fulfillment. I mean, think about what that passage says. Who, who is bringing us through hardship? God is, because we're soldiers, and we're called into conflict. We're called to engage in war. That's the calling. That's, that's what we are. Now, what is a soldier who avoids conflict? A deserter? An infidel? Uh, you pick the word. A coward? So, this is the nature of the call. It's just hard. That's what it is. 
soldiers who are called to active service have zero expectation that it's going to be safe and easy. They have zero expectation that there's not going to be danger. It just goes with the calling. They, they assume hardship and risk and suffering as a matter of course by the nature of being a soldier called to active duty. They're just part of the calling. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the very next chapter, he says, Yes, and all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How many will? Everybody. So what we have is we have a bunch of people that are running around trying to have their best life now, trying to avoid conflict at all costs, trying to uh, fill their lives with as much ease as possible, trying to do things the easy way. The, the, what basically we've done is we've, we've wound up Christianity and the way we process our belief into the American dream, and we've turned it into the American Christian dream. That we're just going to... We're just going to make it easy, and we're just going to try to avoid all the... We're going to try to try to go to the safe places, do the safe things, take the easy things, take the least amount of risk. He says in verse 4, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who's enlisted him as a soldier. Now... No one engaged in warfare. Now, if you're disengaged, it's a whole different ballgame. But if you're engaged in warfare, you don't entangle yourselves with the affairs of this life. I wonder why Paul says that. Because a distracted soldier is a dead soldier. A soldier who's not focused on the, the gravity of the situation in which he finds himself in, called into active duty in the midst of a conflict, is a sitting duck. Part of the devotion of being a soldier is that you cannot be a good soldier and not have a desire to please your commander. In other words, any soldier that doesn't prioritize being obedient to the chain of command that's above them is, is a terrible soldier. Am I right? Yes. The whole structure falls apart if there's no chain of command. And even if there is a chain of command, if someone is unwilling to yield to that chain of command in a conflict, it's a catastrophe. And so... The idea here that Paul's is, is just simply, he's just simply speaking in terms that anyone with any, any understanding whatsoever of any, even the smallest degree of understanding of a military operation would get this. That you're not distracted and the goal is to be pleasing to the one who's enlisted you. In other words, your commander-in-chief is the one that you are listening to. The one whose orders you are, you're carrying out. The way you determine when you, which direction you're going to go, how the attack's going to work, what weaponry is going to be used, what the tactics are going to be, everything about it is determined by the commander. And you want to be... A good soldier, you want to be pleasing to him. 
So what does Satan do? Satan, he, he cons us into trying to avoid conflict, trying to avoid hardship, trying to ease off and, and take the easy road and the, the way that's going to be most comfortable. And then he uses one of his most effective weapons. He distracts us. He gets us so distracted that we're not, we're not, we, we, we don't, we're, we're not focused on what we're supposed to be doing. And so we get off distracted on all these other things. And what we've lost sight of is, is that we're not being pleasing to the commander. So this just has unlimited examples. But I mean, the greatest distraction and the greatest demise of the the modern American family, the way this distraction comes, comes about is there has never been in the history of the world, young families today, it is, it's mind-boggling. You're running in five million directions. I mean, your schedules are insane. Your kids are tired and worn out. They're, they're involved in every activity under the sun. And Satan is having an absolute field day. I am not against activities. I am certainly not against, you know, allowing your children to participate in things. I'm all for that. But what is the cost if That's all we ever do, and we're not being pleasing unto the commander-in-chief. In In other words, we're running in every different direction, and guess what falls through the cracks? This. I mean, at some point, I just implore families to just reel it in. Just just reel it in. I, I don't know where this idea that to be a good parent, your child has to be involved in everything or all your children have to be involved in something or however it were, it's insanity. It really is. And if you can do that and get this done, more power to you, but I don't see it happening. And so what am I saying? I'm simply saying this. You know what the objective is? Soldier, please the commander. Do whatever you want to do after that. If your priority is to please the commander, then whatever else you want to do after that, have at it and do all you want to. But if you lose sight of this, you've lost sight of it all. All of it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. What we need is a generation that grows up having had people before them model what it's like to be a soldier, to fight, to fight. Listen. Your grandkids 
They don't just need to know that you are faithful in church. They don't just need to know that you're a Christian. They don't just need to go to Awana and memorize a bunch of verses, as important as that is. All of those things are great, but here's what they need to do. They need to see you. They need to see you with their eyes on your knees crying out to God. They need to see you wrestling, fighting. They need to see that. In other words, when you are really struggling with something, when something really hits you hard, you know that tendency we have to draw and, and, and to make that our private moment? That should be the opposite. That when all the chips are down and you are a mess and you're frazzled and you're scared to death and you don't understand, that's when you need to gather everybody together and let's just get on our face and cry out to God and say, I want my kids to hear me say, I don't know what to do. I don't know how we're going to get through this, but I know I trust you regardless of what happens. I trust you, Lord. You've been faithful in the past. I trust you today. And God, if everything else falls apart around me, I'm going to stand for you. Your kids need to see you do that. Your grandkids need to see you do that. The, anyone that you're discipling needs to see you in the battle. Listen, if all they ever do is have lunch with you when you're wearing your uniform and you're, you're on R&R, that doesn't teach me anything about being a soldier. I learn zero about being a soldier by hanging around soldiers that are just hanging around. The way you learn about soldiers is you sit down and they start sharing with you about war, about getting shot at, about fear, about thinking you're going to die, about victory being snatched from the, the, the jaws of defeat. That's how you learn about what it's like to be a soldier. Well, guess what? That's what we need to be imparting to the next generation, and that's where we're dropping the ball because we are raising a bunch of marshmallows I'm telling you, our boys are pathetic. They're pathetic. Just embrace it. It's a reality. They're pitiful. When Renee went to Nigeria, I decided that I was going to fervently pray for her every day while she was in Nigeria. And the way that I fervently pray for somebody is I immerse myself in whatever it is they're doing. In other words, I try to mentally get involved in where they are. So what I did was I got her to send me all sorts of information about what she was going to be doing and exactly where she was going to be doing it because I wanted to get as much information about what she was doing in my head so that every day I could sort of just imagine what she's involved in and what God might be doing. And so in the meantime, I started doing some investigating about Nigeria. Well, that was a mistake because I really got aggravated then. I started investigating what's going on in Nigeria, and here's some of the information that I found out. First of all, that Nigeria 
is in the toughest of the 11 configurations that we have uh, in the IMB, in the International Mission Board. It is the southern, that area is the southern tip of the expansion of Islam. So it is where um, these Islamic extremists are making the most headway and they're making uh, converts. West Africa, in particular, has exploding growth. And in Nigeria, for example, I found out that the Hausa people, which is a group of people, that numbers 28 million, has one husband and wife working for the gospel. One couple for 28 million people because nobody wants to go there because it's too hard because it's too dangerous because it's too scary okay so I kept digging I found out that right now in that region that West Africa region we have 50 missionaries on the field 50 in that whole region. Of those 50 missionaries, do you know how many of them are men? This is the most dangerous quadrant of the world, politically, spiritually. The the, uh, climate is the most one of the most difficult places in the world. The living conditions, the travel, everything about it make it extraordinarily difficult to get to the places where these large populations are located of completely unreached people who are getting overtaken by Islam. 50 missionaries are assigned to this area. Of those 50 missionaries, three are men. 47 of those missionaries are single women. Now just think about this for a second. You're telling me that we've raised such sorry sons that in the hardest place on earth to go, our daughters are going. Shame on us. That is pathetic. I am ashamed of that. So while our young men are sleeping in Star Wars pajamas and playing video games, their sisters are slugging through the desert, and spreading the gospel in these dangerous, difficult regions of the world. Which just utterly infuriates me and makes me sick. And I think to myself, what in the world is God thinking? That is pathetic. 
I'm telling you, it is pathetic, it is pathetic, it is pathetic. I checked, double-checked, triple-checked. I kept thinking, I must be, this has got to be wrong. That cannot be true. Oh, no, it's true. It's true. Oh, yeah, we got, we got, we got young men going in the mission field. Oh, yeah. Oh, they're, they're flocking to the Pacific Rim. I mean, they're all about going to the, uh, going to the beach. They're all for, you know, going to the easy places. But the only people we seem to be able to muster to go into the the jaws of the real war are our girls. God have mercy on us. Let me tell you what that tells us. That tells us what kind of young men we've raised. That's what that tells us. That tells us that right now, when I, when I read that, that has, been, that has been searing in my brain for the last couple of months. You don't know how many times I've thought to myself, man, if I had it to do over again, I'd change some things. I'd change some things. That's pitiful. That's what that is. That's shameful. We're going to give account for these weak, passive, leisure-seeking boys that we're raising. Aren't you glad I'm not over there teaching Awana tonight? We need to have the devotion of a soldier. We, we got to figure out how to raise some, some real men, some soldiers that believe the gospel to the degree that they'll go wherever God calls them to go and do whatever God calls them to do. Thirdly, we need to have the discipline of an athlete. Paul says in verse 5, Also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So, similar to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, where the Bible says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. What Paul is, is pulling this athletic metaphor out to, to teach us some things about how it is that we're to respond and to steward the things that we've been given. I mean, look at what he says. If anyone competes in athletics, well, the first thing that jumps out to me is competes. In other words, this, this has nothing to do with spectators. This is competing. This is people who are in the competition, people who have engaged in what they've been called to engage in, not sitting in the stands watching from the distance, but they're actually in the game. And to compete just, just by Nature embedded in the understanding of competing is what? What would happen? You could play the game and not compete. To compete is to try to win, right? Yes. If you play the game and don't try to win, you're not competing. You're going through the motions, and you're certainly not doing it according to the rules. So he says if you compete, 
If you enter into what's going on, you're trying to win. And you don't, listen, if, if you're saved, you don't fight for victory. Do you understand that? You fight from victory, which is what makes this so insane. That a saved person is fighting from victory. You understand what I'm saying? We've all, the victory has already been won on our behalf. And so if that's the case, then how in the world have we gotten to the place where we're fighting, competing from a place of victory? So in other words, it would be like the illustration I used uh, a couple weeks ago in this series where I was talking about if, if I already had the, the game recorded and I already knew what the final score was, then I watch the game very differently because I don't get all freaked out about the ebb and flows of the game because I know what ultimately happens. So if my team fumbles, I don't get upset about it or whatever the case may be because I know, well, I already won the game. Well, how does that affect the way we compete? If we compete from a position of victory, so what does it say about people who are unwilling to compete, and it's from a position of victory. That's, I don't even have a word to describe how pathetic that is. And yet that's what we have. We have a generation of, of athletes who have the potential to compete, but who aren't interested in competing because it's too hard, because it's too difficult, because it's too whatever it is. They would just assume, do something easy. And so they don't even try. And, they, and they're competing from a position of, so how pitiful would it be if you knew that you were gonna win the game and because you knew that you were already gonna win the game, you decided not even to play, not even to compete, not even to try. Do you understand? Is there anything more pathetic than that? Help me understand that. That if somehow you were in a situation where your child, you knew already that they were going to win the game. You knew already that they were going to advance to the, the, the championship. And, and because your child understood that, they just decided to just run around in circles or just stand there or just sit on the ground and not try. And you're like, what are you doing? And they go, well, I won anyway. As if competing according to the rules, well, that's just useless information. All I care about is winning. Once I find out I win, I don't care about anything else. That's pathetic. Pathetic. So we have to have the dedication of a teacher. We're called to have the devotion of a soldier. We're called to have the discipline of an athlete. And then the work ethic, finally, number four, of a farmer. Paul says in verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Hmm. So, astonishingly enough, we look around in our culture and we see that the vast majority of people in our culture are astonished that they're not growing at the rate that they would like to be growing. That they're not, their life is not yielding the level of fruit that they had 
somehow hope to yield or that, that somehow initially when they embarked on this uh, journey of Christianity, when God saved them, they had all these high hopes about, about all the things that God would do through them and in them and so on and so forth. And then decades slip away and then we're standing around looking back thinking, well, what happened? Well, where did all that go? How did all that time just slip away? Well, I'll tell you how it slipped away. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4 says, The lazy man will not plow because of winter. So you know what he'll do? He'll beg during the harvest and have nothing. You see, a farmer that won't plow, a farmer that says, You know what? I would plow, but it's too cold to plow. I I don't feel like plowing. I I don't, you know, the weather's not right. I'm going to wait till next week will be a better week to plow. Whatever the excuse is, guess what happens? You don't plow. You don't harvest. So when you stand back and go, you know, when I look back, I just don't see much of a harvest. Well, that's because you don't see plowing. No plowing, no eating. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. The apostle Paul said, remember when we studied the passage where Paul says, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And we talked about reaping and sowing. And we talked about how that's a a spiritual law. It's It's a universal law that God put in the world that he designed. It's like gravity. Gravity is just there. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't change it. It just is. Reaping and sowing, it's just there. It's just there. It's there in every context. Lost people, saved people, it's just part of the process, reaping and sowing. It's just there. So salvation is a harvest. The farmer who's hardworking, Paul qualifies the farmer who's going to be first to partake of the crops as hardworking. He's saying, so what he's saying here is that the lazy farmer will be last or will not partake of the crops. But it's the hardworking farmer. It's the, it's, the, it's the child of God who understands the dedication of a teacher, who understands the devotion of a soldier, who understands the discipline it takes to be an athlete or the work ethic of a farmer, that all of those things are what Paul's building on top of this over and over to try to get us to, to see. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Neither is he who plants anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. So God gives the increase. So then why do we, why do we need to be hardworking if God's going to give the increase? Why don't, we just, why don't we just sit around and take it easy and be leisurely and see what increase God gives? Which is probably precisely why what has predominantly be, been handed to the current generation is this ineffective, untested, leisure-seeking form of Christianity. Because 
I mean, all we can do is own it. That's all we can do. We just have to own it. Just have to eat it. Because we can't deny that it's there because it's there. It's there. The notion that the Christian life is hard is the most unpopular conversation of our day. The idea that it's going to be fraught with suffering is just that, that your, your suffering is going to be linked directly to the degree of your faithfulness is just no one wants to hear that. No one wants to hear that. We want to hear this happy-go-lucky, just cruise on through Christianity. But yet, maybe it explains why Jesus warns in Matthew chapter 9 that the harvest truly is plentiful. It is plentiful. The problem's not what could be harvested, but the laborers are few. The potential is there. But no one wants to get in the field and plow. Everyone wants to eat, but no one wants to plow. Therefore, Jesus says, pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. To send laborers. So what if we, what if we started looking at our children as future laborers, as soldiers, as athletes, as teachers, as farmers? What if, I mean, hey, I'm just stretching out here a little bit. What if the commander-in-chief is not ultimately impressed by, nor has he called us to, what we have devoted all of our lives to imparting to our children? What if their ACT score is not the most important thing to the commander-in-chief or their college education or their earnings potentials or how good a fastball they can throw or how far they can kick a soccer ball or anything? What if that's not what the commander-in-chief is concerned about? I think what the commander-in-chief is is saying to us tonight is, is that, you know, there's lots of things that you can do with your children that can be wonderful things. But none of them are wonderful if you're not following my command. Because if you're not following my command, then everything else that you're doing is going to just yield nothing but fruitlessness. And we're going to be staring out at this vast harvest, looking around going, who's going to go out there? 
Where are all the laborers? Where did they go? Verse 7. Aren't you glad it's over? Paul says, consider what I say. And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. That's what I just, I just camped there for a while. Consider what I say. Lord, give me understanding in all things. Lord, I want to understand. What are you telling us? Lord, we got to get a handle on some things. We got to raise boys to be warriors. We got to change the way we think about the goal and the win. We've got to look honestly in the mirror and ask ourselves where has this where has this work ethic come from? Where has this lack of discipline come from? Where is the void in devotion? Why does there seem to be no dedication to the things that matter the most? How in the world have we gotten ourselves in a situation where I am standing here tonight preaching to you and there are 47 sets of parents somewhere in this country whose little girl is living in a dung hut in the middle of a desert swarming with Muslims getting up every day of her life and teaching people about Jesus Christ. And you know, she's not... She's not bitter about it. She's not looking around wondering where are all the young men. No. She's just faithfully doing what God has called her to do. Her, her mind is not on anything else but devotion to her commander in chief. And she is joyfully and gladly serving the Lord. And he is supernaturally providing and protecting for her, giving her favor and watching over her. But the whole time this is happening, the whole time this is happening, what in the world are we doing? What has God called us to do? And you say to yourself, well, God hasn't called me. Well, are you willing to go? Because I'd be willing to bet you 
I'll be willing to bet you if you bow your head and you say to your heavenly father, Lord, I'm willing to go. Wherever you want to send me, I'm willing to go. I give you a blank check. I know what God's agenda is on this earth. I know what he's up to because he's told us that in his word. We know what his objective is. We know how it's going to be accomplished. We know who he's going to use to accomplish it. So if the only thing standing between us and it being accomplished is not information, but availability, then it can't be that there's a bunch of people sitting around twiddling their thumbs that are willing to go that God's not calling. That ain't the case. What we have is a case of a lot of people are saying, well, that's somebody else's job. And I'm telling you, that's because your daughter's not in West Africa right now. You think I'm aggravated right now? If that was my little girl over there, I'd be ready to kill somebody. But at the same time, be saying, praise the Lord. This would be the greatest blessing to my heart. Would be for my daughter to say, I'll go into the deepest, darkest, most dangerous place on planet Earth. As much as it, as hard as that is to think about, the reality is, no, I'm committed to the mission. To the degree to whatever that mission is, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. I guarantee, I, t- I promise you right now before God, if God calls me to go to Iraq tomorrow, see you later. I'm gone. I'm out of here. You won't see me again. I'm gone. Whatever he calls me to do, I'm there. But we have got to do something different. We cannot sit around having church, playing games with our kids, raising a bunch of sissy boys that won't do nothing. Nope, can't do it. So be fair warned. I'm, I'm fixing to start praying for all your little boys. All of them. All your little grandsons, all your sons. I'm going to start praying for them. And I'm going to pray that God would raise some warriors. Some warriors that would stand up and they would say the day they graduate from high school that the next two years of my life belong to the Lord and I'll go wherever he calls me to go and away they go and they put a backpack full of their stuff together and they get on a plane and we bid them farewell and we're on our face before God praying for them and they're making a difference in the kingdom. So that if you don't want me praying for your son, then, you, then quit the church and go somewhere else because I'm fixing to start praying for him. First Corinthians chapter 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul says. And his grace towards me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. May God bestow upon us the grace to labor, to fight to war for what truly matters. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I repent. I repent before you, Lord, 
for the failure of my generation. Lord, if I had it to do over again, I'd do it different, Lord. I thank you. I thank you for the little boys that right now are learning to read and write in a hut somewhere. And all they know is the battle. And they're being taught by their missionary parents what really matters, and I thank you for them. And Lord, I pray that you will raise up soldiers in this fellowship. I pray that you will raise up young men who do not desire to play it safe, but who put faithfulness to you above all things. Lord, I pray. I pray, Father God, that we'd be astonished, that we would know that we are in a war because we would have our children and our grandchildren on the front lines fighting the most important battle that there's ever been. Father, help, help us to see the error of our ways. Give us your eyes, Lord. Give us right priorities. Help us, Father, have the dedication of a teacher to stand in grace and to teach relentlessly, knowing that it's going to be hard, knowing that the flesh wants to reject the things that need to be imparted, but that we will stand and that we will impart what we've been given. Father God, I pray that we'll have the devotion of a soldier. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that we're in a war and that we've been called to active duty and that as soldiers, the calling is to fight. And Lord, that our priority would be to please our commanding officer. Lord, that we'd have the discipline of an athlete, that we'd be in the game and not spectators, that we would play the game as if to win, that we'd run the race that we, has been set before us to win, that we would, we would run from a position of victory. Lord, that we'd be hardworking farmers, that we'd plow in the wintertime, that we'd plow in the rain, that we'd plow when we were sore and our backs hurt and our muscles ached, but we'd plow and we'd plow because we know the harvest is plentiful. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. Lord, we don't deserve it, but we thank you for it. Father, I pray that you will continually impress upon our hearts to pray hard prayers, to see risk 
as what we've been called to. And to see it for what it is, it's not risk at all. That what do we have to fear? We fear no man. We fear no principality or no power. You have overthrown them. Your authority is over all things. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to you that you might call us to go where people don't want to go to share your name for your glory. And we thank you, Lord, for what you do. Now, God, we just take these moments and reflect on what you've shown us, Lord. We just want to be still before you. Some might want to come to the altar and pray. I invite you to do that. We just want to be still and we want to consider. We want to think about our legacy. We want to think about our priorities. We want to think about what are we doing and why are we doing it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you.